Uh, this morning we want to tie down the last principle that we were studying yesterday uh, on futurism. And then we want to enter into our next principle, which is that all true Bible prophecy is centered in Jesus Christ. However, before we do, as we begin the day, we want to have a word of prayer to ask that the Lord will guide our thoughts and our study during this day. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we implore the Lord's presence. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning to thank you for your multiple blessings that you have poured out upon us. So many things that we take for granted, uh, clothing, food, shelter, just so many things that we sometimes consider to be automatic, but we know that everything is a blessing from your hands. We especially thank you for your word, which is a sure guide in a world that is so confused. And we ask that as we open that word this morning, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired the word, will be present with us to instruct us about those things that are important for our spiritual walk with Jesus and our preparation for the close of probation. We thank you, Father, for your presence, and we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last session yesterday, we were talking about futurism, the dangers of futurism to the Seventh-day Adventist message. And uh, there are some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy that show that Ellen White understood the dangers of futurism when it comes to the Seventh-day Adventist message. And I'd like to read those statements. They're found in your syllabus, beginning on page 13. At the bottom of the page, you're going to find several statements that I want to read now that show that Ellen White was aware of futurism. And by the way, uh, futurism started gaining strength uh, in the 1830s and 1840s, believe it or not during the times that uh, God raised Ellen White to be a prophet for the remnant church. So it's significant that Ellen White recognized the dangers of uh, projecting the three angels' messages to the past or to the future. So I'm reading at the bottom of page 13, There are those now living who, in studying the prophecies of Daniel and John, received great light from God as they passed over the ground where special prophecies were in process of fulfillment in their order. That's important. So the fulfillment of prophecy is a what? A process. That's historicism. That's the historical flow method. And you'll notice that they have an order. She continues saying, they bore the message of time to the people. The truth shone out clearly as the sun at noonday. Historical events showing the direct fulfillment of prophecy were set before the people, and the prophecy was seen to be a figurative, now notice the next word, what's the next word? Delineation. See, it's a line of prophecy. Delineation of events leading down to the close of this earth's history. See, there's the historical flow method. It's a delineation. It is a process, are the words that she's using, in their order. Uh, she continues saying, Some will take the truth applicable to their time and place it in the future. Events in the train. Do you notice that word also? Train? The, the key words that she's using. Events in the train of prophecy that had their fulfillment away in the past are made future. 
and thus by these theories the faith of some is undermined. From the light that the Lord has been pleased to give me, you are in danger of doing the same work. She's writing to a teacher whose last name is Bell. Presenting before others truths which have had their place and done their specific work for the time in the history of the faith of the people of God. You recognize these facts in Bible history as true, but apply them to the future. They have their force still in their proper place, in the chain, notice all the synonyms that she's using, in the chain of events that have made us as a people what we are today, and as such they are to be presented to those who are in the darkness of error. Interesting statements. She continues saying, the truths that have been, now what's the next word? Unfolding in their order as we have advanced along the line of prophecy revealed in the word of God are truth, sacred, eternal truth today. Those who passed over the ground step by step in the past history of our experience seeing the chain of truth in the prophecies, were prepared to accept and obey every ray of light. She continues saying, the first and second messages were given in 1843 and 1844, and we are now under the proclamation of the third. But all three of the messages are still to be proclaimed. It is just as essential now as ever before that they shall be repeated to those who are seeking for the truth. By pen and voice we are to sound the proclamation showing their order and the application of the prophecies that bring us to the third angel's message. There cannot be a third without the first and second. These messages we are to give to the world in publications, in discourses, showing in the what? In the line of prophetic history the things that have been and the things that will be. So clear. And then we have another couple of statements. All these are from the letter that she wrote to this teacher. Uh, I believe that he was a um, primary school teacher. Uh, she continues saying, All that God has in prophetic history specified to be fulfilled in the past has been, and all that is yet to come in its order will be. And then finally she says, theories will, will be continually agitated to divert the mind, to unsettle the faith. Those who have had the actual experience in the unfolding of the prophecies have been made what they are today, Seventh-day Adventists, by these prophecies. How is it that we were made Seventh-day Adventists? by the prophecies. We are a prophetic movement. And so if you discard prophecy, you discard the reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because we originated with prophecy and our destiny is clothed in Bible prophecy. And so Ellen White was very aware of the importance of recognizing the historical flow method, and she was also very aware of the dangers of projecting to the future or to the past prophecies that had been fulfilled or would be fulfilled in their precise order. Now we want to go to principles number six in this series. We've studied five principles so far, 
and we have 14 that we're going to take a look at. The latter ones are going to take us more time, as I mentioned in our sessions uh, before. Uh, the sixth principle is very important. All true prophecy finds Christ at its center and Christ as its hero. In other words, all prophecy is Christ-centered, and we're going to follow along what's in the syllabus, and then I'm going to give you some examples of how important it is to recognize Christ as the center of all Bible prophecy, both the prophecies that point to the first coming and the prophecies that point to the second coming, because there are two kinds of prophecies. One type points to the first coming, and the other type of prophecy points to the second coming. And we're going to take a look at some of the prophecies that pointed to the first coming, and then later on we're going to look at prophecies that pointed towards the second coming. Now Christ is at the very center of all Bible prophecies. Prophecy is not event-centered, but rather Christ-centered. Jesus has delivered his people from spiritual enemies and spiritual death as a result of his work at the first coming. But at the end of time, Jesus will intervene to deliver his people literally from literal death. Are you understanding the principle here? You know, Jesus, by his death on the cross, he delivered us spiritually from spiritual bondage and from spiritual death. But at the end of time, there will be a death decree against God's people. And Jesus will have to intervene personally and literally to deliver his people from literal death. Now, uh, we're going to take a look at some of the prophecies that dealt with Jesus delivering us from spiritual death and from spiritual bondage. But before that, I would like to go to this next section that we have here, and that is the importance of the concept of the covenant. The covenant is central to the understanding of all Bible prophecy. And basically, the formula that is used in the Bible for the covenant is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And a covenant, of course, means that God wants to have a covenant with his people and his people accept the terms of the covenant and they enter into this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, when we enter a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus commits himself to not only be our savior, but also to be our protector. Now, you'll notice four models that we have here in our uh, syllabus. Uh, we have, first of all, suzerain and vassal. Now, that word suzerain uh, might not make a lot of sense to you, but it means sovereign, a sovereign. And the word vassal means uh, someone who is subject to the sovereign. Now, uh, let me illustrate this point. In antiquity, sometimes a great king would make a covenant with a lesser king from a lesser nation. And basically, the great king would say to the lesser king, you know, I'm willing to protect you if you promise to be loyal to me. And so the covenant would be signed, the agreement would be signed. Now, if, an, if a powerful enemy came against the vassal that had made the covenant with the sovereign, that uh, nation that came against the vassal was actually fighting against the sovereign. And so the sovereign would intervene to protect his uh, the nation that was in covenant with him. Are you understanding? And so when we make a covenant with Jesus, Jesus commits himself, if we are loyal to him, that he is going to intervene and he is going to protect his people, whether it be spiritually or whether it be literally at the end of time. Because Jesus is the great sovereign and we 
are his vassals, so to speak. We are his servants. And so when we make a covenant with Jesus, Jesus promises to protect us, both spiritually and literally at the end of time. A second model we have is that of a shepherd and his sheep. Let me ask you, when a bear and a lion came to devour one of David's sheep, what did David do? Oh, he went after the lion and he went after the bear. Well, you know, the fight of the bear and the lion wasn't with David. It was with the sheep, right? But whoever touched David's sheep was touching David. And so Jesus is the great shepherd, and we are his sheep. And so when the wicked come to attempt to destroy God's people at the end of time, by attacking God's people, by attacking the sheep, they are attacking the shepherd. And because God's people are in covenant with the shepherd, the shepherd has committed himself to protect his sheep. The next model is husband and wife. Jesus Christ is the husband and the church is his wife. Now when the wicked at the end of time come to beat up on Christ's wife, Christ says, now wait a minute, you're, you're messing with me now because that's my wife that you're, that you're mistreating. And so Jesus is committed. If we have entered a marriage covenant with Jesus Christ, he has committed himself to be a good husband to protect us both spiritually and literally at the end of time. The final model that we have is the head and the body. Let me ask you, when somebody pricks you with, with a needle, does your head feel it? Of course, it's your head that feels it. In case you, you didn't realize that your head feels it because your nervous system you know, informs the head and the head tells you, hey, you got pricked with a needle. So, so what happens? Whatever affects the body affects the head. Now who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And what is his body? His body is the church. So what happens in the end time when the wicked come to try and destroy the body of Christ? Oh, they're messing with the head, with Jesus Christ. You remember when, when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus and he was going to um, arrest Christians that were there in Damascus, in Syria. Um, you know, he, he saw a bright light from heaven and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul of Tarsus, you know, he said, I'm going to Damascus. Who is this? You know, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I'm sure that Saul thought, well, you're in heaven, I'm down here. How can I be persecuting you? Well, the fact is that by persecuting the people of God, he was persecuting the God of the people. Are you understanding the principle? The covenant principle is vital for understanding the, the prophecies that have to do with the first coming and the prophecies that have to do also with the second coming of Christ. When we enter a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus commits himself to protect his people. And you know, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, we have the scene of the sheep and the goats. Jesus places the sheep at his right hand and uh, he places the goats at his left hand. And what does he say to his sheep? What does he say? He says, in that you have done it. Unto one of these, the least uh, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So the final battle, folks, that we're going to study about is not a battle of the wicked directly against Christ. You know, there's this idea 
that the battle of Armageddon is, you know, when Jesus is coming at, on the clouds, the wicked are shooting nuclear weapons at him. Well, that, that's a futurist idea, and, it, and it's good for Hollywood, but it's not biblical. The fact is that the final battle is that the wicked will attempt to destroy God's covenant people, and Jesus will intervene to protect them because he's going to say, hey, that is my people, and by attacking them, you are attacking me. You know, the same thing happened at the edge of the Red Sea. You remember when, uh, when Israel was trapped there at the edge of the Red Sea, they, couldn't, they had no escape. But God opened the waters, and Israel passed through the waters. Now the sea was still open, so the Egyptians now come into the sea, and when they're in the midst of the sea, the Bible tells us that God took the wheels off of their chariots. And did you, re did you realize what uh, the Egyptians said? They said, the Lord fights for Israel, let's flee. <laughs> and, so, and so in fighting the God of the, uh, uh, the people of God, they were fighting the God of the people. That's the way we are to understand the final battle. It is not a battle directly against God. It is a battle against God's people. And by fighting against God's covenant people, they are fighting against God. Is that point clear? Vitally important to understand, particularly end time prophecy. Now, some Christians say, well, you know, I believe in the New Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian. You Adventists, you know, you're Old Testament Christians. We're New Testament Christians. The fact is, folks, that both the Old and New Testaments are centered in Jesus Christ. And I have next on, in our syllabus illustrations of this. They're, uh, you know, analogies that will help us understand the relationship between the Old and New Testament. First of all, I like to compare the Old Testament with sand. The Old Testament is sand. The New Testament is the water. And Christ is the cement. Are you with me? It, it, it makes it concrete. That's what makes concrete, right? That's what makes, it connects the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament is like the moon and the New Testament is like the sun. See, the Old Testament, wh where does the moon get its light? The, the moon gets its light from the sun. The glory of the moon is the glory of the sun. So what was the Old Testament? The Old Testament was like the moon. In other words, you, it's reflected light. All of the symbols and ceremonies that you find in the Old Testament are actually a, a shadow. They are actually the light of the moon, but the light is projected by Jesus Christ, the sun. Jesus Christ is the center, in other words, of the Old Testament. But the light of the Old Testament is reflected light. Jesus is the reality. The Old Testament is like a scale model. Have you ever seen a scale model? You know, he had a little mock model of, I remember when they were going to add to the Fresno airport, you know, they had in the lobby, they had a case where they had a little mock-up of what it was going to look like when the project was finished. And you know, as you look at the airport today, it's just like it was in the scale model. But the scale model is not the reality. The scale model is a lot smaller. But it gives you an idea about what the project is going to look like. And so the Old Testament is the scale model. It's the, the little miniature model, if you please. And then when you look at Christ, you see the reality. You see the fullness of what the small scale model points to. 
I like to consider the Old Testament as a shadow and the New Testament as the reality that casts the shadow. See, uh, Jesus is the reality. And Jesus uh, casts uh, his light on the Old Testament and then the Old Testament is the shadow. And when you see a shadow, you know that there's a reality that's projecting the shadow, right? For example, if you're walking down the street and you see a shadow of a post, you know, you better be careful because there's a post that's projecting the shadow, right? You better make sure that you don't walk into the post. The shadow tells you that there's a reality, that there's a concrete reality. And so all of the Old Testament is a shadow that helps us understand that there was going to be a reality in the future that projects that shadow. And of course, that reality is none other than Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is like a picture. Does a picture give you a good idea about someone? Yeah, it does. It tells you about the color of their skin. It tells you about the, the color of their hair. It tells you about the color of their eyes. Uh, it, it, you know, it shows the features of their face. And if it's a body shot, it, it shows you how they dress. You know, it gives you a pretty good idea about the, what the person is like. But is it very different to see the person in person? Of course it is. So the Old Testament is the picture. And the New Testament is the reality of what the picture portrays. The Old Testament is the pattern. And the New Testament is the finished garment. Are you following me? The Bible is composed of prophets and apostles. But Jesus Christ is what? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. In other words, Jesus is the one who holds together the structure when you relate the Old and New Testament to one another. It's no such thing that uh, the Old Testament is law-centered and the New Testament is grace-centered. No, there is law and grace in both Testaments. But the Old Testament is reflected light, whereas the New Testament is original light, because Jesus Christ is the reality towards which the Old Testament points. Take, for example, the sanctuary. The Hebrew sanctuary, which we're going to study in more detail a little bit later on in this class, gives us the events of the plan of salvation, the steps that Jesus Christ takes in saving us from sin. It begins in the camp, it continues in the court, and the court, of course, has the altar of sacrifice that represents the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Then you have the labor where the priest washed before he went to minister into the holy place after he'd offered the sacrifices. Jesus cleansed himself from, from death. In other words, he came forth from the tomb to die no more because remember that people who touched the body were defiled because death defiles? Well, Jesus cleanses himself at the labor from the defilement of death. And so now he resurrects at the labor, which is called the labor of regeneration in Titus 3 verse 5. And to regenerate means to give new life. And then he enters into the holy place to apply the benefits of his life and death to those who come to him in faith. Because the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus uh, were, were for everyone. Jesus lived for all and he died for all. You see, I can't offer the law perfection. And so I needed someone who could law, offer the law perfection in my place. So Jesus came and lived the life that I should live. That everyone should live. You know, and I don't want to die. I want to live. So Jesus says, I'll take your death upon myself. So Jesus lived for everyone, and Jesus died for every single person who has ever lived in the history of planet Earth. Does that mean that everybody is going to benefit from his life and his death? No. 
that's where his ministry in the holy place comes. In the holy place, now people can come and, and they, they can say to Jesus, Jesus, I repent of my sins, I confess my sins, I trust in your righteousness, please Jesus, take your life and your death and place them to my account. And then I am benefited by what Jesus did by his life and his death. In other words, the work in the holy place is individual. The work in the camp and in the court is corporate. It's for everybody, but you only benefit from it when you claim it personally and individually. Are you following me? And then, of course, Jesus moves into the most holy place, 1844. See, you have dates for all of these, don't you? In a moment, I'm going to get to the dates. And, and so Jesus moves into the most holy place and examines all of the cases to see who truly repented from sin. Because there's a lot of crocodile tears, right? And so the purpose of the judgment is for Jesus to reveal who was a genuine follower of Jesus. Because there's a lot of counterfeits. There's wheat and there's tares. There's wise virgins and foolish virgins. There's good fish and bad fish. There are people who have the appearance of godliness but don't have godliness. There are people who say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, I don't know you. And so there's two kinds of believers. The purpose of the judgment is to reveal to the universe who was a true believer. And for that, you have to open the records. Are you with me? And when every case has been examined, then all of the sins that have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus are now taken, and Jesus moves once again to the entrance of the sanctuary, the court. The court is the earth, by the way, because that represents the earthly work of Christ. Then Jesus takes all those sins that have already been forgiven. The scapegoat doesn't forgive sins. They were forgiven already. And he places them on the head of the scapegoat, and he's sent to the wilderness and ultimately destroyed. What do you have in the sanctuary? You have the worldview of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You have the whole plan of salvation illustrated in a building. <laughs> so uh, is the sanctuary important? Yes, but what, but what is more real? What Jesus does or the sanctuary uh, little scale model? See, the purpose of the scale model is to point to something far greater, to Jesus. And then, of course, you have the feasts. The feasts give us the calendar of Christ's events. See, the sanctuary tells us what the events are. The feasts tell us when those events take place. Passover. There you have the altar of sacrifice. And then, and then you have the death of Jesus, which is at the altar of sacrifice. You have his resurrection. Remember the feast of the first fruits? And by the way, while he's in the tomb, that's the first day of unleavened bread. So you have, you know, the, the death of Jesus at the altar of sacrifice, 14th of Nisan. Then you have the first day of unleavened bread, that's the 15th of Nisan. And then you have the first fruits, his resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And, uh, and that takes place on the 16th of Nisan. And then 50 days later, you have the feast of Pentecost when Jesus enters the holy place. And then... Uh, you have, in 1844, he enters the most holy place of the sanctuary. So the feasts are the calendar of the Messiah, whereas the sanctuary portrays the events of the Messiah. How could you ever understand any of this without the Old Testament? It's impossible. Christians don't realize that, that by saying that the Old Testament was for the Jews, and we, you know, the Old Testament uh, is, is not for Christians, and we're New Testament Christians, they don't realize that without the Old Testament, there's no way you can understand the New Testament. It's an impossibility. Now, let's 
examine some Bible texts where we are told that Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. Let's go to John chapter 5. You have several of these. I'm not sure that we're going to read all of them, but um, we'll read some of the more significant ones. John chapter 5 and verse 39, and uh, then we'll read verses 45 to 47. John chapter 5, verses uh, 39, and then verses 45 to 47. Verse 39 says, um, and Jesus is speaking to the Jews, You search the scriptures. Which scriptures would those be? It has to be the Old Testament. There was no New Testament when Jesus spoke these words. So you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And then he says in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In other words, you look for eternal life in the scriptures, but you reject me. And the scriptures point towards me. Unbelievable. And then verse 45, verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? About whom did Moses write? Moses wrote about Jesus. Jesus says, you claim to trust in Moses. You say, you, you, you love Moses, but you don't love me. You're contradicting yourselves because Moses wrote about me. So if you really love Moses, you would love me because Moses wrote about me. In claiming to accept Moses, but not accepting Christ, they were not accepting Moses either. Now, let's go on. Uh, well, verse 47 says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now let's go to Luke 24. This is an interesting passage, Luke 24, and uh, we'll read verses 25 to 27. This is on the road to Emmaus. Remember the experience of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Well, uh, Jesus catches up to them, and uh, let's read about what happened. Luke 24, and beginning with verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now, I would have liked to have been at this Bible study. <laughs> it was a long walk. Verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, those three expressions, Moses, prophets, uh, scriptures, or writings, is really the threefold division that the Jews had of the Old Testament. The Torah, the Nebi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketubim, which is the writings, the rest of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, listen, the whole Old Testament points to me. So it says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning whom? The things concerning himself. Now, let's go to verses 44 to 47. Here Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room. 
And I want you to notice what happens there in uh, beginning with verse 44 and through verse 47. It says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So, so who is at the center of the law of Moses? Jesus. Who is at the center of the prophets? Jesus. Who is at the center of the Psalms? Jesus. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Do you know what the key was? The key was Christ. Once they understood Christ, the Old Testament became a living book. Verse 46, then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, begin at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And then he says, and we'll come to this a little later, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And there were certain prophecies that they needed to understand about the day of Pentecost. And the re one of the reasons why Jesus spent 40 days here after his resurrection is that he had to explain to the disciples the prophecies that had been fulfilled in him and the prophecies that would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And we'll see that very clearly uh, in a few moments. Now let's go to John 1 and verse 45. John chapter 1 and verse 45. Uh, it says there, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> interesting. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Philip says, well, We found the Messiah, the Messiah that was predicted in the law of Moses and also in the prophets. Uh, let's go to the book of Acts now. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. Same idea coming through. It says there, To him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets witness. How many prophets witness to him? All. To him all the prophets witness, that through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And sometimes I ask people, I say, did Jesus forgive people's sins at the cross? You know, when you ask that at a non-Adventist church, the answer is a thunderous yes. And unfortunately, when you ask it in the Adventist church, it's not as thunderous, but it is pretty thunderous that people say, of course he forgave sins at the cross. Jesus did not forgive sins at the cross. Jesus made provision to forgive sins at the cross because forgiveness is an individual thing and it requires repentance and it requires confession and it requires faith. It is when you claim the benefits of what Jesus did with his life and his death that he takes his life and his death and places them to your account and he looks upon you as if you had never sinned. That's unique to Seventh-day Adventist theology. The other churches say, oh, everything's a cross. Jesus forgave people at the cross, you know. Everything took place at the cross. 
Well, what, is Jesus, what has Jesus been doing the last 2,000 years then? In heaven, interceding. Well, but if everything was taken care of at the cross and sins were forgiven there, why does he need to intercede? There's an individual work that has to take place. The individual work is you claiming what Jesus did. Last I knew, there's a verse in the Bible that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So forgiveness comes when we confess our sins, and we confess them because we're repenting, and we trust in Jesus. So this verse says, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Remission is the same thing as forgiveness. Let's go to Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. Once again, the same theme, to whom do the prophecies point? To whom does the Old Testament point? Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. 23. It says there, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, this is uh, Paul who is speaking, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. And here is what they said, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So you'll notice that there's several things here. First of all, that he would suffer. Uh, secondly, that he would rise from the dead. And third, that he would be proclaimed to the world, basically to the Gentiles or to the world. And of course, that took place, we'll notice, on the day of Pentecost. Notice Acts 24 and verse 14. Acts chapter 24 and verse 14. It says here, But this I confess to you, he's speaking to Felix, This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Who is the center of the Old Testament, folks? The very New Testament says that the center of the Old Testament, of the law, of the prophets, of the writings, of the Psalms, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, I want you to take out the sheet that says Moses and Christ. Moses and Christ. That's what was given out. It was incomplete yesterday when we gave it out, but this morning you received a complete copy of it. Moses and Christ. This is an interesting document. And I'm not going to read all of the verses in the document because it would take us two hours just to read all of the verses. I want you just to get the picture. See, in this class, all we can do is give hints. And, and give the picture. And then you have to go and you have to go work your way through this material. There is a lot of material here. And it's going to take you months to negotiate it. But, uh, but I hope that the class will inspire you to say, hey, i got to go through this material. This is exciting stuff. You know, if that happens, the class was a success. If you were just here during this week and you heard all these things, say, wow, this is great, this is wonderful, and you go home and you never look at this material again, then you, you cheated yourself. You know, the big fee that you paid to take this class <laughs> will be wasted. And I'm being facetious, of course. <laughs> now, let's go to this document, uh, Moses and Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, God promised to send another prophet like Moses but greater than Moses. You can read that passage. 
Acts 3.22-26, and Hebrews 3, 1-5, as well as 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, we'll take a look at this very soon, in fact, uh, still this morning in our session. Assure us that Jesus was the promised prophet. In Deuteronomy, we are told that Israel, this is an important principle, that Israel would be cut off if they did not listen to Moses. So today, spiritual Israel would be cut off if they do not listen to Jesus. The things of Moses now belong to Jesus. In other words, Moses is a shadow or a type of Jesus Christ. He's an Old Testament small-scale model of Jesus Christ. His experience illustrates a greater experience in the future. This great truth was not understood by the Jewish nation in the days of Christ. They trusted Moses, but they rejected Jesus. Paul also deals with this theme in 2 Corinthians 3, and you have a whole document which we're not going to be able to cover. It's called a monumental conversion experience. On 2 Corinthians 3, this is a very difficult chapter in the writings of Paul. He seems to, to say that the law of God was done away with because it's the letter. It doesn't have the spirit. But when you read it carefully, there's a tremendous lesson here, and that is that there's a great danger of reading Moses without Christ. Or looking at the law without Christ. It's not that the law is bad or negative, it's that the law without Jesus is a real problem. Because you get all caught up in legalism, which was the problem of the Jews in the days of the Apostle Paul. So make sure that you read that document, A Monumental Conversion Experience, because it's a careful uh, study of 2 Corinthians 3 in the light of the experience of Moses at Mount Sinai. Let me just give you a little inkling here. You remember that Moses went up to the mountain and... Uh, he had an intimate communion with the Lord. In fact, Ellen White describes that God gave him, God uh, gave the law to him and also gave the ceremonial sacrificial service. In other words, he gave him the moral law as well as the sacrificial service, the plan of salvation, which is basically the purpose of the sacrificial system is to take care of the transgression of the law because the sacrificial service makes it possible to be for us to be saved even though we've transgressed the moral law of God. So God revealed to Moses the, the law, the moral law, as well as the sacrificial system. And when God finished revealing that to Moses, and by the way, Moses understood that it was centered in Jesus Christ. He understood that the glory of the moral law is found in Jesus because Jesus is the law in person. The law is simply a, a written reflection of who Christ is. But Moses understood that the law is a reflection of the character of Jesus in person. And he understood that the sacrificial system wasn't killing a bunch of animals. He understood that the sacrificial system pointed to salvation in Jesus Christ. He saw the glory in the Old Testament system. And so when he comes down from the mountain, because he talked with God face to face, and he received this glorious light, what happened with his face? Oh, his face was shining like the noonday, noonday sun. And so the people, when they saw the face of Moses, said, Moses, what a wonderful glory. No, what did they do? They said, Moses, cover the glory. They wanted Moses, but they didn't want the glory. Because they rejected, in other words, they rejected Jesus, but they accepted Moses. Are you following me? And Paul says that is a veil over their heart. 
the hardness of their heart. But he says, but when they are converted to the Lord, the veil will be removed and they will see the glory on the face of Moses. That is on the writings of Moses. All of that is in that material. That's why I say, read it. The materials that you're going to receive, 500 plus pages. Read the material. It, it's got really, really important things. Now, the story of Moses is to be understood as the continuation of the warfare between the serpent and the sea. The same four elements that are found in Genesis 3.15 are also present in the story of Moses and the Exodus. Now, if you want more on this, I have 52 one-hour presentations on Genesis. <laughs> and I show how you have this pattern of these four elements of Genesis 3.15 all throughout the scriptures, of course, culminating in Revelation 12. See, the, 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 the text to which Genesis 3.15 pointed is in Revelation chapter 12. What are the four elements? First of all, a woman. Who's the woman in the story of Moses? Jacobin. Do you have a seed of the woman? Who is it? Moses. Do you have a dragon? Do you know that in Ezekiel 29 verse 3, Pharaoh is called the great dragon? Hmm, interesting. And do you have enmity? You have enmity of Pharaoh against Moses. Are you with me? Is this the same, uh, same picture that we find in Genesis 3.15? Same picture. And you find it in the story of Cain and Abel too. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. Interesting. You know the story of Cain and Abel. Do you have the four elements in that story? You know, when God said to the, to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The devil says, oh, oh, a seed is going to come to the world and that seed is going to, is going to crush my head. So he made up his mind that, at that moment that he was not going to allow that seed to come. And so you enter the story of Cain and Abel. Very interesting story. Do you have a woman in the story of Cain and Abel? Who is the woman? Eve. And you have two seeds, right? Yeah, you do have two seeds, two sons. But one is a good seed and the other one what? Who is the other? Whose seed is the other one? The other one is the devil's seed. In a moment I'm going to give you a text that proves that. So you have a seed. Which, by the way, is Abel, and the devil says, oh, Abel, he's the one that's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, so I've got to get him killed. So what does he do? He rises enmity of Cain against Abel, and he has Cain kill Abel. So is there enmity? Is there a woman? Is there a faithful seed? Is there also a, a devil involved? Does he have a seed? Yes, and you say, where's the devil there? Well, you have to go to the New Testament. Sola Scriptura. In 1 John 3, verse 12, it says, not as, Cain, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and killed his brother. So whose seed was Cain? Of the wicked. And listen carefully. This teaches a very important lesson, and that is that whose seed you are is not determined by your birth. Because both seeds were born from the woman. It's a matter of choice whose seed you belong to. Now let's go back here to the material. So you have, you have a reenactment of the story of Genesis 3 verse 15 here. Now let's take a look at the parallels between Moses and Christ without going to the specific verses. Israel was God's Old Testament bride. 
Jeremiah 6 and verse 2. What was the prophetic fulfillment to this? The Christian church is God's bride. Right? So in other words, uh, in the Old Testament, Israel is God's bride. In the New Testament, the church is God's bride. By the way, they are not two separate brides. God is not a bigamist. The New Testament bride is a continuation of the Old Testament bride. And you say, how do you know that? It's very simple. Because in Revelation chapter 12, you only have one woman that represents both the Old and New Testament. See, so this idea that God has two mutually separable peoples, Israel is one people and the church is another people, you go to Revelation 12, it doesn't hold water. Because, because the woman exists before the child is born. Right? Jesus comes from the Old Testament church. But then, after the child is born and ascends to God's throne, then the woman flees to the wilderness for 1,260 years. Now you're in the New Testament, but it's the same woman. So God has only one woman. And this woman has two stages, the Old Testament stage and the New Testament stage. Are you with me or not? So Israel was God's Old Testament bride. The church, the Christian church is God's bride. Historical root. Israel was in bitter bondage to the Egyptians, correct? Prophetic fulfillment. God's people were in spiritual bondage to sin. You can read those verses there. In John 8, Jesus says, whoever is a slave, you know, whoever serves uh, sin is a slave to sin. So there's a symbolism of slavery. Just like Israel was literally in slavery, God's people were in spiritual slavery. Historical root. The children of Israel were slaves of the great dragon, right? Pharaoh. How about the fulfillment, the prophetic fulfillment? The enemy of God's people, that is of the woman and the child, was what? A fiery red dragon, who is also called the great dragon. Historical root. God's people were crying out in pain for deliverance. Prophetic fulfillment. The woman was in travail, crying out to bring to the world the deliverer. Was the woman crying out in Revelation chapter 12 for the deliverer? She was, like Israel was crying out for a deliverer. Historical root, a deliverer was born to a woman, Jacobin. Prophetic fulfillment, a man-child was born to a woman, Mary. Historical root, Pharaoh feared that he would lose his throne if he allowed the child to live. Prophetic fulfillment, another king who had the same character as Pharaoh feared that he would lose his throne. Historical root, Pharaoh killed the male infants, but Moses was protected in Egypt. Prophetic fulfillment, Herod killed the male infants, but Jesus was protected in Egypt. Of course, all of this is coincidence. <laughs> There's no coincidence. This is typology centered in Jesus Christ. Historical root. God called Moses and Israel out of Egypt. Prophetic fulfillment. After Herod died, Jesus was called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. Historical root. The death of the Lamb was the sign of Israel's deliverance from bondage. Prophetic fulfillment, before his baptism, Jesus was introduced by John as the Lamb of God, 
And Jesus is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Is it the same sign of deliverance? Yes, but Jesus is greater than the type. Historical root. Israel and Moses were baptized in the Red Sea. Were they? You can read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River as a pattern for the baptism of his people. Historical root. Moses fasted for 40 days on the mountain. Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and he was taken to a high mountain. Historical root, God gave Moses and the people the law of the kingdom from a mountain. Prophetic fulfillment, Jesus gave the law of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Historical root, the face of Moses shone on the mountain as God spoke with him. Prophetic fulfillment, the face of Jesus shone upon the Mount of Transfiguration as he heard the voice of God, and Moses was actually present in person when the Father spoke to Jesus. <laughs> Type and anti-type. Historical root, Moses interceded for his people, offering his life in place of theirs. Prophetic fulfillment, Jesus is the great intercessor who was willing to forfeit his own life to save his people. And Ellen White makes a parallel between the intercession of Moses on the mount and the intercession of Jesus Christ in favor of his people. Historical root, Moses brought water from a rock, manna from heaven, and raised up a serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is the rock from whom water springs. Jesus is the living manna that fell from heaven. And Jesus is the serpent that was raised in the wilderness. Historical root. Moses organized the 12 tribes and established 70 elders. Fulfillment. Jesus established 12 and sent out 70 to help him in his work. You think this is coincidence? There's no way this is a coincidence. This is typology, historical root. Moses was tested by the constant opposition of the Jewish leaders and the people. Of course, Moses was, uh, Jesus wasn't, right? Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus was opposed constantly by the Jewish leaders and by the people. Historical root. Moses died, was buried by God, and was resurrected by Christ and ascended to heaven. Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. So, the story of Moses is not the end of the story. It really is a typology that points forward to Jesus Christ. Now let's read the final paragraph. We'll come back to this a little bit later to explain uh, in a fuller way. Deuteronomy 28 describes the blessings and cursings of the covenant. The blessings would come if Israel obeyed, and the curses would come if Israel disobeyed. Israel miserably failed the test, so Jesus came to redeem the history of Israel. Do you know that Jesus came to live the history of Israel in himself, to redeem the history that it, where Israel failed? As a second Moses, he went over the same ground as Israel, but in contrast to them, he perfectly obeyed the covenant and thus gained the victory where Israel failed. It is significant that Jesus quoted three passages to the devil on the Mount of Transfiguration, and all of them came from Deuteronomy, which speaks about the wilderness wanderings. In spite of the fact that Jesus perfectly obeyed, he bore the curses of the covenant 
because he was bearing the guilt of Israel. He not only lived the life of Israel the way it should have been, but he bore the curses of Israel as well. He bore the curses of the covenant because he was bearing the guilt of Israel. Jesus lived and suffered in our place and thus exhausted the covenant curses. But we must accept him to personally receive the blessing. For those who are in Christ, all the curses of the covenant have been paid for. This is the meaning of baptism. In baptism, God reckons us dead in Christ, all our history is erased in Christ, and His history is reckoned as ours. With His history reckoned to my account, I will want to live a holy life for Him. What a tremendous concept. Jesus not only lived the life that Israel should live, and that we should live, he also died and suffered the curse that the law has for those who are disobedient. In other words, Jesus did for the world. Not only for Israel, but for the church, for the world. He did what we could not do for ourselves. What a wonderful Savior and God we serve. How wonderful it is to see Christ in the Old Testament. Because it becomes a living book. It lights up and we see Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I hope that this has been inspiring in leading us to follow Jesus closer. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.